Good Sunday evening, everyone. Hard to believe that the weekend is almost about to come to an end. And before we know it, uh, tomorrow we'll start the beginning of a new week. Well, um, I am glad to be back on again tonight uh, to share with uh, my audience um, another uh, session of History 101 podcast being session number five, uh, or as a friend of mine who is an avid sports fan would often say, one for the thumb, especially when the Pittsburgh Steelers won their fifth Super Bowl uh, about 14 years ago it was. So, session number five tonight, I have no doubts, will be just as good as the first four um, have been. And we continue to discuss um, Dan Abrams' novel, John Adams Under Fire. Last night, I had mentioned about how um, there was a significant period of time before 1770, or in the years leading up to 1770, how England and the 13 colonies, or I should say her subjects, had all gotten along pretty well. Yes, there were some uh, minor uh, isolated moments where there could have been a mild uh, level of hostility or um, an unpleasantry, but somehow those differences were worked out. And it is safe to say uh, that when John Adams was born in 1735, that England and the 13 colonies uh, were on good terms. I mean, who would have thought when John Adams himself was born in 1735 that um, that there would have been any um, dramatic um, decline in uh, good terms to the point where um, one or two colonies out of the 13 are beginning to talk about wanting to um, declare separation from the mother country. What I find hard to believe is that two years before John Adams himself was born, the last of the 13 colonies was, set, was um, established, being Georgia. Um, and Georgia was uh, established in 1733 by James Oglethorpe, who founded uh, present-day Savannah, Georgia. So it's easy to assume that all 13 colonies were um, settled before our forefathers were born, but now, um, I just remember, too, that Benjamin Franklin, having been born in 1706, Samuel Adams, 1722, George Washington, 1732, and uh, those three, for example, were born before Georgia was established, and then John Adams, born two years after the final colony was established in, um, in the colonial America, uh, just speaks a lot as to how far... Um, Time itself has evolved in the overall evolution of what would become an empire, not just an empire for one part of the world, but for the British Empire in terms of its overall might and growth. You know, after all, even in 17, even in John Adams's time when he was first born, 1735, leading up to the time of 1770, England is still considered to be the most powerful country in the world. So anyways, uh, now back on to the present um, state. Did John Adams um, go about um, planning to represent the eight soldiers and their captain all by himself? Well, that answer to the question is is an obvious uh, answer being no, although it is wishful thinking to assume that he could have done all that work on, on his own. 
he actually had two other lawyers who um, joined him. Now, here's the thing. They, they all came up with a compromise, but the, but the compromise for his other two lawyers was that they, they had to have John Adams join them. And in, or, in, other, in other words, they had, he had to join them in order for things to just really work right. Who were these other two lawyers? They were Josiah Quincy Jr. and Robert Alshmuti Jr. Alshmuti, I should say. It turns out that um, Robert Alshmuti Jr. came from a distinguished Massachusetts family who happened to be pro-British, or I should say loyalist. He even served as a judge in the Vice Admiralty Court. As for Josiah Quincy Jr., he was one of his family was among one of the first settlers to um, settle, or I should say, establish themselves in Massachusetts. Believe it or not, John Adams himself married into the Quincy family. It turns out that his wife Abigail, her mother, was cousins with Josiah Quincy Jr.'s father, being Mr. Josiah Quincy Sr. Small world, to say the least. After all, families have a unique way of uh, providing connections that either strengthen ties or weaken them. And sadly, in this case, the Quincy family was torn apart by Josiah Quincy Jr.'s decision to join John Adams and Robert Alshmuti Jr. in defending the eight soldiers and their captain, Thomas Preston. I can only imagine just how much heartache it would have caused. But it's like I said in last night's podcast discussion, John Adams did uh, take on cases where it involved um, family dysfunction. And it's safe to say in, in 1770 that the biggest form of family dysfunction would have been divided households between loyalists and patriot. Just because... Um, just because someone had view had a view of being pro-patriot, it didn't mean that the rest of their family was on the same page. Well, how does John Adams feel about having um, two other people join him? I would say he feels good on one hand, but it is safe to say that there are a lot of um, unknown risks in taking the case. Is it a simple decision? The answer is no. And there are many potential consequences. One, for example, is the risk of reputation, or I should say personal reputation, including livelihood along with the loss of friendships and would-be potential clients. Then you have to factor in the safety of of the family as a whole. There were rumors that John Adams' home had been targeted by those who were totally against his decision to represent the eight soldiers. In other words, um, outsiders or, or people within the city of Boston, I should say, had uh, perhaps uh, thrown a rock and damaged a window in his home. And yes, it's one thing to take on a case. On the other hand, though, when you do represent someone, regardless of the matter, in this case, being a group of men who fired into a crowd, and as 
those who survived on the night of March 5th, 1770 said the, the people who were wounded and who died were just nothing but innocent um, people who were at the wrong place at the wrong time. As we continue to learn more about this historic event and what's already been explained earlier, we're kind of beginning to realize that not everybody was innocent on the night of March 5th, 1770. Was money involved in this matter? No, not necessarily. In other words, John Adams wasn't looking to chase the almighty dollar for this court case. As a matter of fact, lawyers didn't make the same kinds of money, or the same type of money, rather, like lawyers in general could make today, depending on whether uh, a Mr. Jones, for example, works in private practice, or if Mr. Jones is the DA, or if he is the Commonwealth's attorney, well, in this case, um, Commonwealth attorney uh, only apply, might apply to, um, say, four states who were referred to as Commonwealths, being Kentucky, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. And in case any of you want to know what does Commonwealth mean, common means for political purposes, wealth means many, meaning um, a multitude of people who are affected by political, economic, and social factors. So back to the money factor, the answer was no. However, there was a consolation, I don't know if I'd say consolation prize is the right word, but a consolation token in terms of money that John Adams himself would earn if the outcome went in his favor. The answer to that is a guinea. I didn't know until I read this book really what a guinea's worth was, but I'm going to share it with you all. A guinea is a coin weighing one quarter of an ounce of gold. Well, gold is a very precious commodity, and not everyone had access to anything that might have been the equivalent to one ounce of gold, even in 1770. Of course, even by 1770, if you had silver, silver was a very precious commodity. As a matter of fact, when my wife and I have visited Colonial Williamsburg on many of, of occasions, and how fortunate we are to live only an hour away from Colonial Williamsburg, we've learned that uh, the best way to keep good use of silver was to have it be broken down into eighths, or one-eighths, I should say, or what's called a millet. In other words, if you need to have um, some repair work done on a precious piece of silver like a teapot, and for example, a teapot would have been something that most well-to-do people could have afforded, a teapot that had, say, elaborate decorations on it. If that was the case, uh, Mr. Jones, for example, would give uh, one-eighth of his silver to the silversmith to, do, to make any kind of um, necessary um, refurbishing on that teapot. So, that's really the closest thing that anybody would have had um, in terms of silver, because paper money, let's remember people, paper money was useless. Yes, it could have gotten by on one occasion, but say, at a later time, the paper money would not have had any uh, relative or what we call relevant meaning. 
Uh, silver, on the other hand, could get you a lot of things. So it was always good to have coinage, most notably silver. But if you had gold, you were a standard above everyone else. Well, as for John Adams and his perspective on the current state of law, or should I say the current state of law in colonial America, he knew it was lagging behind, whereas in Europe it was already one step ahead, or should I say beyond one step ahead, most notably in England, the mother country. Well, what did John Adams realize that had to be done in order for the concept of law in colonial America to really be um, not just profitable, but to have any true significant meaning to everyday ordinary people. Well, he knew that in order for law itself to succeed, it had to serve in the, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And what do you know? The night of March 5th, 1770, had really become the first true precedent that, or should I say, an example of a precedent that we could go by. He believed that, as I mentioned last night about the bar, and how in order to become a lawyer, you had to pass the bar. In other words, um, that term was derived from um, England, where um, if a vessel had uh, made it over the sandbar, it was a subject of British law. So in other words, the bar itself has, had to be independent in his eyes, but it also had to be impartial regardless of any circumstance. In other words, um, there had to be no favoritism. People, like the case of, of a juror, he had, and in, this, and in, this, and in his day and age, jurors were, all, were men. Uh, they, uh, it was their duty to serve their community by uh, being um, a juror or a jury men, they had to be able to think independently on their own to come up with the best decision that um, benefited the community, but also the person who was going on trial for his life. Well, anyways, um, what else can we uh, take from, uh, from this? Well, it's safe to say that John Adams was already laying out a foundation even before the trial started. He was, um, he was almost ahead of his time in terms of how, how courtroom drama was to be set out. Is it safe to say that, his, that the other two members of his defense team were on the same page as he was? The answer to that question... Um, believe it or not, is the opposite. In other words, um, if you take uh, the prosecution team, for, ex for example, there were two members of that team, Robert Treat Payne and Samuel Quincy, who happened to be brothers with Josiah Quincy. Now, here's another good example of family dysfunction. You've got one family member who's, a who's the prosecutor. The other one is on the defense side. Talk about a lot of riffraff right there. Well, as for Robert Treat Payne, he had been friends with John Adams for quite some time. While the two of them did work together at times when, when it was needed, they were also opposite rivals of one another. 
And this, on the other hand, um, did cause, obviously, tension. But it's interesting to note about Robert Treat Payne was that prior to himself becoming a lawyer, he had served in various capacities like a seaman, a merchant, and a chaplain during the Seven Years' War, or is what many in colonial America refer to as the French and Indian War. I truly believe, and even as Dan Abrams noted, has noted in the book, one of the reasons perhaps why John Adams wasn't on unified terms with the other two lawyers on his side might have had to do with his overall brilliant state of mind in terms of his ability to reason and think independently. From what I read in the book, his other two partners, Robert Alshmoody and Josiah Quincy Jr., while yes, they um, wanted to make a name for themselves, they didn't believe in the same outlook that John Adams had done. Of course, then one would say, well, why didn't John Adams just go alone at it? Well, that's easier said than done. Given that this involved a murder case, you had to have more than one partner on your team. Why so? For strategy purposes. And secondly, you would want to have um, an additional partner or two on your team because, for, for all we know, that lawyer could have had expertise from another uh, time in place representing the same kind of um, case or situation that may not be 100% similar, but did have similarities to a degree. So all in all, it's safe to say that, uh, you know, it's easy to assume that, hey, everybody is on the same page, whether you're prosecution or defense, but that's not always the case. And it could be that way at times, even in today's modern society. So... Who wants to know just how many uh, judges were going to be presiding over both of these trials? Well, we know in modern-day society in the United States Supreme Court, there are nine justices, or I should say a chief justice and eight associate justices. Well, believe it or not, the answer is four. Why so few? Well, it's just the way it was back then, and plus two, the Massachusetts Superiority Court was comprised of five justices, one chief justice and four associate. But given the circumstances of the trials, it was best to have four. I do know that um, in today's times, the, co the color uh, robe that justices wear is black, which represents impartiality, or I should say neutral, neutrality. Well, in colonial times, judges wore different color robes, all depending on the type of trial or case they were hearing. It turns out in the case of the massacre trials that the judges wore red robes. Wearing a red robe represented a death penalty case, and that is what was at stake and we will learn that from another podcast session. Uh, we will go into uh, the trials. So, and that was not in that in the color red itself. In terms of red robe, was something that I myself did not know about until having read this book. I had uh, actually forgotten that um, 
justices or judges wore different color robes uh, regardless of the trial or circumstantial matter at case. So um, where was this, uh, where were the trials going to be held? Well, they were going to be held in Boston and uh, they were going to be held in uh, Suffolk County. And what do you know um, during this time that that um, how do you call it? The court system is starting to um, undergo some major um, line or what we call um, major uh, haul, uh, hauling changes. Why so? Well, as the 1750s came to an end and as the 1760s came along, things were changing greatly in colonial America. Trials themselves had been around since the time the 13 colonies were established. But the idea of holding trials in a courthouse was something totally unheard of. Believe it or not, prior to um, courthouses being established, the vast, pretty much all court trials were held either in townhouses or in taverns. I found this to be... Um, shocking in a way that court trials were actually held in townhomes or taverns. On one hand, it would probably make sense to hold a trial at a tavern because taverns were uh, public gatherings for, uh, most notably for men um, to attend, uh, not just to find out what the daily news was all about, but to um, converge for a, uh, for a beverage, to converge on um, on the on the news that, that was surrounding the town, and not just surrounding the town, but perhaps um, a newspaper that one obtained that talked about news that was going on from another colony. So, it does make sense to have a ta to have a court trial at a tavern because it did bring people, most notably men from all around the town, um, to find out what court case or cases were at stake. A new courthouse, especially in Suffolk County, being in Boston, marked a, also helped mark a sign that new things were to come, for the, not just for the study of law, but for the practice of law to expand in colonial American society to where um, law itself could be seen as something that would draw young men um, to um, want to pursue that field with passion and um, make it um, a practice that wasn't confined to just one area, but allowed uh, a young man's ability to um, reason at a greater level. That's why John Adams ended up going into that profession over ministry, because he saw ministry as just being too rigid. But it is safe to say that depending on where you lived in colonial America, um, take Virginia, for example, the Church of England, yes, the Anglican Church um, did have strict adherence to rules, not just to rules, but what was um, acceptable to be um, uh, ministered and in terms of what a minister um, preached to his uh, congregation. Uh, but as but it's probably a good thing that John Adams himself did not uh, become a minister because had he done so, he probably would not have found the same um, stroke of fortune like he had would become by doing so and being a lawyer. So, um, with all this said in mind, uh, 
one other thing I can say that's interesting to note about Suffolk County in Massachusetts, uh, there is a, a village in England known as Suffolk, and how ironic that uh, in, Vir- in Virginia there's a town uh, called Suffolk, Virginia that's uh, probably about an hour, about an hour and a half, two hours from where my wife and I live. Uh, Suffolk is on the way to, say, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, the Hampton Roads area. And, you know, it's like, and as I said the other night, um, we forget just how many places in colonial America, um, in colonial America, um, whose cities and towns were taken, um, by route, uh, from England. You have Suffolk, England, there's Norfolk, England, um, Essex, um, Southampton, Northampton, um, the names can go on and on, but all of these towns and villages had essential significance to establishing places in um, in each of the 13 colonies. Well, um, that wraps it up for tonight's session, and I look forward to another session coming up here soon, and, uh, and I will make sure that with the next sessions uh, to focus a great deal with these uh, trials and why we had to have two trials and also emphasize that um, that the Boston Massacre wasn't just so much a not just so much the incident itself, but why there were two trials. Because prior to this incident, whenever a court trial occurred, it only involved it, the incident itself was only one matter. It was very unheard of for one particular incident to have multiple trials involved. So. Again, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you all about Dan Abrams' John Adams Under Fire. Take care, and um, God bless, and stay safe.